WUOG 90.5 FM presents Out There, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theory, the paranormal, and other bizarre undercurrents of the human psyche. The views expressed on this program do not reflect those of WUOG 90.5 FM, the University of Georgia, or the Board of Regents. It's Out There with your hosts, Raymond and Joe. Secret Lair on the fifth floor of Memorial Hall on the University of Georgia campus in Athens, Georgia. This is Joe McFall and Raymond Wiley. This is Out There. Yes, yes, Sorry. yes. I didn't have to introduce myself this episode. It was kind of nice. Joe, you're really getting good at saying that stock intro line like quickly. It's Well, it's a great, you know, I like it. Somehow it's, you know, the whole irony of our secret lair being in a very public place and me saying the exact location, like pretty and, much. And very lo-fi. Anyone can walk right into our secret lair. Right, right. Much. Yeah, there aren't like Russian hackers. Although there you do have video to, cameras. At this time of night, you do have to have like a University of Georgia ID to get in here, usually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so if you want to like sabotage our show, you're going to have to fabricate <laughs> one of those first. So, welcome to Out There. This is uh, WOG's weekly show about the occult, conspiracy theories, and the paranormal. We, and, and secret history. And, and secret history. We're going to add a new <laughs> pillar. You know, we, we had talked about how, we, how our show had three pillars, but if you think about a building with three pillars... We've been evaluating our pillars. Yeah, if you think about like a building with three pillars, it, would, it, it might fall over. So, fourth pillar, hidden history. Anyway, and speaking of hidden history and conspiracy theories, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Surprise, um, surprise. Surprise, surprise. If you were listening to our show a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about connections between the CIA and Nicaraguan cocaine smuggling and yeah, the Gary, crack, Gary and, Webb Dark Alliance right yeah, the origins stuff. of the crack ep- epidemic in the 1980s and so that all ended up sort of tying into the CIA and like high government conspiracy and what we're going to talk about tonight is sort of um I wouldn't call it a footnote I would call it like a continuation that, of the story that rabbit hole goes so deep Raymond that there's no way we can completely cover the entire story with that. Absolutely. So we're going to try a little bit more tonight yes. to add on to what we talked about before. Right. So tonight we're going to tell you the story of cocaine smuggling, Mena, Arkansas, Oliver North, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton George Bush, George Bush uh, and uh, famous cocaine traffickers. Right. So, But before we do that, we're going to do our usual... Um, our usual spiel, our usual announcements. Um, if you want to find out more about this show, you can check us out on the web, www.wuog.org slash out there. Capitalize the O and the T and out there, and your browser will thank you. If you like our show, send us an email. It's outthereradio at gmail.com. Um, we're also online. Raymond's usually sitting at home with the out there instant message, the the... AOL, AOL Instant AOL. Messenger. Yeah. yeah, their screen name's Out There Radio, so right. drop us a line. Yeah, we, do try, we do try to answer all of the emails that we get, by Yeah, the way. and I try to get back to everybody on all the instant messages, too. Sometimes I'll be asleep or in the next room, but uh, if, you, if you stay on me about it, I'll, I'll definitely get back to you now. You can subscribe to our podcast, by the way, in your favorite podcasting software if you haven't already. All of our shows are archived online. You can download them directly from the website, it's, which is, again, org slash out there. Or you can even like just search for us in iTunes right. and, and find our show. Sure. Right, and we had a big moment, uh, or a big milestone that we hit this week on our podcast. We um, we had a thousand downloads of our most recent episode in, in the first week out, and that that was a big moment for us. So thank you guys for helping us build up uh, this show since October, especially those of you who have been there since 
the beginning or close to the beginning without your help and your constant support and good feedback. I don't know if we could have gotten this far. That episode, by the way, go check that out. That's a good one. The Hail, Hail Satan. Yeah, episode 25, we Hail inter- Satan. We interview the high priest of the Church of Satan, Peter H. Gilmore. That was a lot of fun. There's some, yeah, there's some good ones in our archive, so check out the website. Again, that's wuog.org slash out Right. You can also check out – we have a forum built into the website, and we uh, post new show announcements on the forums. You can talk to people who are sort of like-minded and want to discuss uh, out there kind of topics. We don't just talk about uh, sh- uh, topics we've done shows on on the forums. And we also um, – you can submit a show request to us. Well, I mean through email, which is where we get them usually, but through the forums as well and – that way, you know, other people can see it and say, yeah, I'd like to see a show on that as well. And you can up your chances of seeing whatever topic it is you want us to talk about. So our, our phones aren't working time, by the way. So don't call the 800 number. If you're in Athens, you want to call and talk to our producer, Stephen. Stephen, you want to take some calls? <laughs> yeah, he, know, can, he can relay a message to us. The number is 1-706-542-8476. And Stephen will be there in the studio, and he can pass a message off to us. Like I said, our phone systems are, as usual, down up here at the studio. But, um, you know, we're out here. And if you want to talk to us, we're also in the um, OmnisoundRadio1.net chat rooms. That's um, our Internet affiliate Network and uh, Hi, everyone can, to out there, li- yes. out there hey, listening to Omnisound. Hey, Omnisound people, uh, if you want to access that, omnisoundradio1.net. That's all one word, and you can just click to enter the chat room, and it'll be cool. Um, do we have anything else this week? Oh, we, we have a solid date on the Out There season finale. It'll be August 7th. It'll be a two-hour special episode, and we're going to try to tie it all up for you. <laughs> we'll so, try. We'll, we'll try. try. We'll try. So let's get into this, Joe. We have a lot to talk about tonight, and we are already you know, eating I'm up time. I'm psyched. Man, this is, this man, stuff is so interesting. Yeah, i got to hand it to you, Joe. You've done some really good notes. For tonight's show, this Thank is you, much man. more detailed than we usually walk Raymond, into the studio. With. I'm getting a tear in my eye. Are you? Man. Get, aw, thanks. He's all misty. <laughs> Steven's just sort of hanging his head. He's like, these guys he's are like, ridiculous. One of these guys are going to shut up, right? So let me let let me start the story off, Raymond. August twenty third, nineteen eighty seven, about four in the morning, uh, along some train tracks outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, in Saline County, Arkansas, a sixteen and a seventeen year old uh, two boys, Kevin Ives and Don Henry were run over by a train going from Texarkana to Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah, it was the day before they were going to start their senior year of high school. They were out hunting. Yeah, the conductor on the train says that they are going the federal speed limit of 55 miles an hour. They see these um, two people on the tracks laying side-by-side uh, side with their hands at their sides, half covered with a tarp. The train conductor, they apply the brakes, you know, honk the horn, as they're, you know, as they're breaking and sliding toward these boys in the tracks, they say there's no mo- no movement at all. They also said there's a rifle next to them. Which makes sense that the boys were out hunting. Yeah, later it turns out that they were out hunting that night. Um, the, the train crew gets out of the train. They notice that this is odd. There's very little blood uh, around the body parts that are strewn around the scene. Um, the blood that they do see is obviously not fresh. It's like dark, almost purple, and has a consistency of tar. EMTs arrive at the scene. They agree. They said there's no no real blood. I mean, com- compared to what had happened, if they had been alive on the tracks, just laying there, there would be a bloody mess. It right. was a bloody mess, but it was different. Exactly. And, you know, we can, even from the description that you've just given us of the scene, Joe, if you were a police officer coming into uh, this situation... Immediately, the flag would should go up in your mind that this is fishy. You know, this this requires yeah. some investigation. Yeah. But immediately, the sheriff's department there in uh, Saline County, right. Arkansas, right. 
basically says, oh, this is just an accident. We're going to... Maybe a suicide. Maybe a suicide. We're going to yeah. investigate this as it, as if it were an accident. Which is an interesting thing to do, Remy, because in a, in a situation like this, and I'm not a law enforcement official, and I don't know if you are or not. I'm still trying to figure this out, whether or not you're... I may be a spook. I know. I know. I, I'm aware of this. I'm still trying to decide. I haven't decided yet. When you come upon a scene like this, it's my understanding that you treat every scene of it as, as if it's a homicide. I mean, unless it's very obviously not. But I mean, you know, two boys on the train tracks at night, and you've got these train conductors telling you, yeah, they're covered with tarp, and like they weren't moving. They ev- the, the train conductors even got out and found the tarp and showed it to the sheriff's deputies that night. The sheriff's deputies de- deny that there was a tarp at all. Right. In fact, they treated it like an accident or a suicide, and... Even though the sheriff says that the investigation was completely thorough, there was no tarp covering the bodies and or anything like that, it was so thorough that they actually left one of the boys' feet out there for two days. And right. some like some onlookers who you know came to look at the scene found one of the boys' feet. Yeah, there's video footage of this. I mean, we watched a couple of documentaries yeah. uh, in doing research for this show, and there's the foot laying there on the train tracks right there in the video. It's crazy. So the whole train crew thinks it's kind of weird that the EMT, well, the, not the EMTs, but the sheriff deputy, the Salem County Sheriff, is treating this uh, like an accident site because they you know, saw these two bodies cover the tarp. The EMTs agreed that like these bodies looked like they were already dead on the train tracks. When they got there. So why would a 16 and 17 year old boy be out there in the train tracks at night? Right. Well, the first medical exam, which was, um, which was performed by medical examiner, how do you say his name? Fami Malik. Fami Malik. This is in Arkansas in 1987. Mm-hmm. He says uh, that it was an accidental death. They had each smoked about 20 joints and fell asleep on the tracks. Oh, but that's not what he said first. He, he ruled it a suicide first. And when, when it, like the parents of the boys that were killed. Right talked to the sheriff's deputies and like the sheriff's deputies came back to to the coroner Fami Malik and were like no they'll never accept a ruling of suicide which makes sense i mean why would two young boys just go lay out on the train tracks to kill themselves right. it seems like the you know it, i don't know it just seems like completely like it doesn't add up so he then rules like you said Joe that these two boys had had smoked such a massive amount of marijuana that they fell asleep on the train tracks, side by side, perfectly like right next to each other, you know, mm-hmm. as if they were laid out and uh, didn't hear a train coming and got ran over by a train. This was the official ruling for a long time on this case. They actually, the family sort of complained about this, this idea that it was accidental. And so they exhumed the bodies and performed a sec- second exam. What actually it turned out was that uh, the two boys, Don Henry and Kevin Ives, were probably already dead when they were placed in the tracks. Don Henry had been stabbed, and Kevin Ives had been struck in the face with a rifle before they were killed. So they were dead. They had been killed. This was a homicide. Uh, this Actually, this case is, never, is still open. Uh, it's never been solved. So let, let's talk about a little, a little bit about the medical examiner, Fami Malik. Sure. Because sure. there's some He's, other fishy stuff. He is the I mean we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go from county medical examiners to presidents in this show, but this guy may be the most interesting and shady figure that we talk about tonight. Thami Malik was um I believe an Egyptian immigrant that was the basically head corner for the area in Arkansas at the time. It turns out that he he was the state medical examiner, actually. Well it turns out that this wasn't the first case that Mr. Malik had completely I, I, I want to say botched, but botched isn't the right word because 
I mean, if you look at the, if they, you go back through his cases, you you see really odd stuff. You know, like him ruling this sort of thing a suicide when he could obviously see a stab wound and a blunt trauma to one of the children's heads. There in this was, case, there was know? one case where he, um, a previous case. Or maybe this actually happened after, but is unconnected. I mean, this shows this guy is either incompetence or maybe covering something up. Where he, there was a man who had died from multiple gunshot wounds. Looked like he had been killed by like an automatic, uh, semi-automatic pistol. Uh, who he ruled that he ruled a, su- a suicide, as well. Five, five, five shot shots in yeah. the chest. Yeah, shot. Stuff it like sounds that. like a lot like Gary Webb. Two shots to the back Two of the head. The and it's a suicide. Look yeah. at that. So. Uh, but that, but that isn't the. I'm going to tell the Crim de la Crim story, Joe, about yeah. Fami Malik. Uh, in the case of James Milam, who was killed in May of 1987, let's see. He ruled that the man had died of natural causes, a perforated ulcer, but the body was found decapitated. So he was decapitated, but actually died of an ulcer. Yeah, yeah according yeah. to to this medical. Example. Yeah, he ruled that the man's dog had had bitten his neck off and had eaten his whole head. <laughs> and that was yeah, why yeah. there was no head. And in fact, I had heard that he claimed that he found a little bit of dog vomit that had some brain, human brain matter in it. And that was his evidence that this man had died from an ulcer and not been decapitated by, you know, organized crime or whatever. Well, later it turns out that the head was found. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so, I mean, that, that should tell you something. So what's, but, what's I mean, this is like, this is, well, okay, well, what do we have here? We have a corrupt, obviously, state medical examiner. Let's let's say he's either corrupt or incompetent. Right. We we can we can reserve. Let's our... rule out incompetency here, Joe. I mean, a severed head, ulcer. Uh, well, I mean, maybe he's really incompetent. I say we keep we keep that option open until we look at more of the evidence. For instance, what would be his motivation for corruption? Okay. Well, let's let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Wh- who would uh, who would he be helping? Uh, in these cases, organized crime is one possibility, right? Mm-hmm. Other government officials, another possibility. Well, it turns out that uh, Mr. Malik had connections with then uh, Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton. Joe, you want to tell the story about Clinton's mom? Yeah, Clinton's mom. This well, this is interesting. Let me be, give a little bit of background first, because one one of the reasons that we're talking about this guy is, at all is because whether or not he's corrupt or incompetent, these are our two options. The fact is that he stayed in office for years without getting fired, without resigning, right. and this is after like in the full, face of numerous public outcries yeah, to have him fired. This is yeah, years of public outcry, and he's kept in office, and this is very interesting, right? If it's in, if it's just incompetence, then that's one thing. And we, if it's if it's incompetence, then we'll have to find a story to fit that. If it's corruption, then there's gonna there's definitely a story that can fit that. And it and it certainly fits yeah. that mo a lot better. Yeah. So because yeah, because I mean, the the story with uh, the connection to Bill Clinton, of course, he was appointed by Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton's mother, Virginia Kelly, she was a um, anesthesiologist who apparently there were some some deaths under her care that some people were kind of uneasy about well malik cleared everything up and told her that everything told the public that everything was fine with what she did cleared her of all possible malpractice right Right. so in some senses clinton owed malik one whether or not he was incompetent or corrupt clinton owed him one so that's one possibility in this case you know malik stays in office for so long because clinton is repaying this favor with this whole thing with his mom i mean and when we say repay the favor we're not just talking about he stayed in office i mean like 
couldn't in the, defend it, him. Right, yes, in the midst of this public outcry to have him fired for, I mean, completely obvious reasons, mm-hmm. cl- then-Governor Clinton gives him a $14,000 a year raise. Yeah, Clinton brings in two supposedly independent medical pathologists to come look at uh, what Malik had been doing. These people said, oh, he's fine, everything he's worked on is you know, gold and everything. Turns out these guys were paid $20,000 from Clinton's discretionary fund and told not to really investigate Malik at all. So what we're looking at then is this story of, you know, it's possible if there's corruption involved here that there's a cover-up. Because it's not just about Clinton's mom. It's, you know, it's not about Malik helping Clinton out right. in that way. That just illustrates to you the co- type of character that Malik was and why he stayed in office for so long. Yeah. Well, check it out. Once they finally did get him taken out of office, I think in the mid-90s was when he was finally dismissed from his job as a uh, chief medical examiner for the whole state of Arkansas. He was... Uh, <laughs> He was like, they created a job for him. After I can't remember what the exact job title was, but they created a, you know, perennial job for this guy that paid him $70,000 a year, you know, after he had been basically run, you know, run out of his job for incompetence. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was how far the powers that be went to repay this favor, yeah. whatever the favor was. Yeah. After years of public outcry, Clinton finally said, well, yeah, I kind of think he should resign. Right. Alex says, no, I'm not going to resign. Right. He and, finally does. And it wasn't just Clinton. It was, um... Clinton's um, Surgeon General, I can't oh, remember. Jocelyn what, Elders. Jocelyn Elders was yeah. protecting him too, which uh, I don't know. I always liked Jocelyn Elders back when I heard about heard about her as a kid, but yeah. now I uh, now I don't think so much. You know, I, I, I kind of worry about hearing stories like this because I don't know. A lot of the stories that we have told have have seemed to sort of lead back to a more conservative faction within our government. Oh, don't worry. This one does, too. <laughs> <laughs> but as, we'll get to that. Right. But but even with that said, as we can see, you know, when we get into this, it's sort of an across-the-board kind of thing. It seems like a real Southern Corru- thing. Corruption you know? is nonpartisan. Yeah. That's that's a big point with this whole episode, I think. Corruption is nonpartisan. So let's let's get into a little bit deeper with this, Raymond, because, you know, what, what could Clinton or Malik, or whomever, possibly have been covering up with this whole thing. Right, yeah, and that, I think that's, the, that's what this goes back to, is why should these two boys have their deaths covered up? What was it that these boys saw or were a part of that got them killed? Well, that leads us to the drug issue. Yeah. And the main point that everyone in the... Um, in Arkansas that was investigating this was getting to at that point was that there were a lot of reports of people hearing low-flying aircraft around that area. And then in later years, it came out that uh, massive cocaine drops as part of smuggling operations were taking place right around those railroad tracks, like right around that area. So the motive seems to be pretty obvious as to why these kids were killed. And I have never heard one person put forth one other motive as to why these kids were killed. Yeah, the the main the main reason that most people think that these kids were killed is because they were witness to one of these drug drops. They were there. They were probably walking on the railroad tracks, happened on the scene, and saw something they shouldn't have seen. Were killed on the spot and put on the tracks. That's right. sort of the, what a lot of people think happened. Right, and apparently. There were witnesses to this. Like this, this wasn't just this isn't just speculation. Like there have been, we're going to go through a lot of this investigation tonight. But as this investigation unfolded, witnesses came forth and saying that they heard or saw exactly what went on in the tracks that night. A lot of them, most of them, are dead now. Yeah, many times these witnesses were found either murdered or suicided or accidentally died by some other you know suspicious 
suspicious ways, of course. Right, always. right, right. So let's let's can before we try to paint the picture of the the larger drug smuggling operation that's going on that is really the the impetus for all of this. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the investigation into into these two boys' murders. By the way, these two boys' murders are often called the train deaths. In the midst of the public outcry about these two boys dying, especially with one of their mothers taking uh, the lead on this because it didn't add up for her just like it doesn't add up for us. And imagine if this was your child that we were talking about, mm-hmm. how up in arms you would be about it. Well, she led, helped lead the Arkansas authorities into doing an investigation. So Saline County uh, appointed a special prosecutor, Dan Harmon, to investigate the deaths and to lead a grand jury investigation into the murders, or what they were now beginning to start ruling as murders. They had, it took them, I think it took them almost a year to even admit that mm-hmm. there was foul play involved. Right. But Malik still insisted right. the whole time, by the way, that he's sure that no one laid a hand on those boys. Right. They smoked 20 joints and passed out <laughs> next to each other on the train tracks, and that's what With happened. A, and, put a, and pulled a tarp over them. <laughs> I'd like to see somebody smoke 20 joints that quick. That would be something to see. What are you doing later? <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Boom. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, okay. All, all right, all right. So <laughs> moving on, moving on from that. Um, let's talk a little bit about Harmon and his grand jury investigation. Dan Harmon's uh, grand jury investigation basically went nowhere. They called a buttload of witnesses. Uh, the people on the grand jury were dead sure that there was murder and corruption and drug smuggling going on, that there was a real drug problem in Saline County. And miraculously, the case just all gets dismissed, and all the grand jurors just get sent home after like seven or eight months of hearing witness testimony, and no indictments are handed down in the case whatsoever. Still to this day. Still to this day, exactly, yeah. But So this first grand jury investigation goes nowhere. Well... We can, I guess, leave the train deaths there for a while and start talking a little bit more. But before we do, there's one thing I want to point out, Raymond, because, you know, let's say that these these kids were killed by drug smugglers or drug dealers or whatever. Now, you would think that... Any all levels of government would want a would want a very deep investigation in this matter to figure out who did it, who's killing the other witnesses, what's going on. Like it, the only reason it seems to me that they wouldn't be looking into this. This is like the biggest murder that it's hit this part of Arkansas ever. Yeah, it ran on two episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, back at the you would think that they would really, really be interested in finding out who killed these kids. But it seems like every time someone looks a little deeper into it, it's stonewalled, which seems to me that it's not just your street-level drug dealers. It's not just your guy selling you know, nickel bags down the corner. Right. You know it, what I mean? It points to massive government corruption in small southern towns. Yeah. Wow, I never heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the drug problem in Arkansas at the time. Because if you remember back to our show about Gary Webb, Gary Webb talked about and traced back a number of entry points into the country for this Nicaraguan and Colombian, or this Colombian cocaine that was being filtered through Nicaraguans and being brought into the country and then later turned into crack in a lot of cases, especially in the early 80s. Well, Mina... Arkansas, which is a, a town in western, I think western yeah, Arkansas, western Arkansas near the border, ended up figuring into Gary Webb's story a little bit, but it figures greatly into our story tonight. Now, 
why do we go straight to the MENA story? Well, let's think about a place like Arkansas in 1983. How many big cocaine smuggling operations could there have... You know what I'm saying? Yeah, how, yeah. How, many, how many giant cocaine operations could there have been in Arkansas at the time? It, you know? For drug dealers, turf is important. You know what I right. mean? For, if, you're, if you have massive shipments of any drug going through any particular place, you want to make sure that no one else does so you can have a sort of monopoly on drugs in that area, you would think. Right. So, I mean, if, you're, if you've got... If you've got a, enough, a, a large enough operation to where you're doing drops outside of, on, you know, outside of Little Rock in Arkansas, then you've probably got a pretty big operation going on. There's and not it, a lot of people in that part of Arkansas doing that big. Right. I don't think anybody else is going to be dropping. I think there's only going to be one, like, syndicate dropping giant loads of cocaine out of airplanes Say in it. Arkansas at one Say time. Say it. What? Say it. What? Who is it? Who is it? Yeah. It's Barry Seal. Okay. And the CIA, probably. Maybe. We'll see. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Point being, this cocaine dropping operation that supposedly ran out of the MENA airport had a number of locations where drugs would be dropped. And this was one of the... Where these boys were killed was one of these locations. So... Apparently, in the in the six months or so or more leading up to the boys' deaths, there had been complaints in that area about low flying airplanes. Right, and and, and to think and think about that when you have enough low flying airplanes coming into an area that it will, like, spark citizens to call in and complain about it. That's a lot of traffic, mm-hmm. and you know, and and from what we find later in our research about the size of these drops that were going, in, it would be a hundred kilos of cocaine. Or 300 kilos of cocaine in one drop from an airplane, and that's that's major money. That's enough money to get low-level Arkansas government officials on your side. Oh yeah, and so, maybe even high maybe level. even high level. So let's talk about. Do you want to talk about Gene Duffy? Gene Duffy first, or do you want to talk about Barry Seal first? Let's talk about Gene Duffy because okay. she was appointed the head of a federal drug task cor- task force in Saline, Saline County in Arkansas. On the day of when she was appointed on her first day of work, she goes into her office. A man named Gary Arnold comes in and tells her explicitly that she's not to use the drug task force to investigate public officials. This is a quote from from Jean Duffy. She's not to use this federal drug task force that she's just been appointed the head of to investigate any public officials. I think she had been, what, an assistant DA in Saline County up until that point. She was was not too far out of law school from from what I could gather. Yeah, she's like a a young DA who was appointed this position. She hires on, what, I think seven or 11? Yeah, federal federal anti-drug funds come into her office, and she hires seven undercover... Uh, informants, basically. Police officers. I mean, they were well, Some of them, were they all police officers or were some of them were... Were they also informants? I, I think th- some of them were informants and some of them were police okay. officers. Okay. They're all undercover people. Right, regardless. right. They were all paid. They all had, yeah. you know, jobs doing this. So she didn't... When she got involved in this drug task force in Saline County, she had no inkling. I mean, she had heard of the train deaths on TV, which, but, is, which is the way people refer to the murder of these two boys, the train deaths. She heard about the, the murder of these two boys because, I mean, there had probably been a thousand articles run about it. That's what one of the documentaries was saying. Yeah. But there was no explicit time. connection to no, drugs n- at that no point. No, no explicit connection. So she starts getting, you know, within, I think, two months of her starting this task force, one of her undercover agents is ready to reopen the train desk case. He's already compiled enough evidence to say, we can find the people that did this. And yeah. he was ready to start an investigation. So Gene Duffy started gathering information and gathering evidence quietly and wouldn't right. tell her boss because her boss had already told her not to investigate 
you know, government officials or whatever. And he's getting this evidence through his, I mean, this is a drug task force. He's getting this evidence through his drug contacts. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, so, and so what Gene Duffy is saying when you, when you listen to interviews with her is that it took, uh, it didn't take any time at all for almost all of her undercover agents, like, you know, they had to start at the beginning, so they would go out and they would buy drugs off the street and sort of work their way up the ladder to try to find, you know, connection after connection after connection. Well, basically, she said that once they got beyond street level with most of this stuff, that it would be that they couldn't help but, in, you know, uh, investigate government officials because they were all tied up with it. So come to find out the sheriff's office in Saline County and the prosecutor's office. Dan Harmon, the man who had run the grand jury investigation right. into their deaths, were implicated through this investigation. In fact, Jean Duffy found evidence. She believes that Dan Harmon was on the scene when they were murdered. On the tracks that night. And it makes sense because who would be doing, okay, if you've got the government, the city government in Saline County or whatever in your pocket and you're running a drug syndicate or whatever. Who would be the logical choice for people to pick something like that up? Police officers. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if they're already on your payroll, that, that's going to be the safest method to transport something or to pick something up. Nobody's going to mess with you then. Nobody's going to, you know, take your coke from you if it's being loaded into the back of the police car. Just like nobody will arrest Martin Luther King's uh, murderer if he jumps in the back of a Memphis police <laughs> department car and speeds off. Right, right. So Raymond, mm -hmm. what you know, what what where is this going? Because so far we've only talked about local local government officials on a fairly it seems like small scale. Except you know we have talked about this large scale drug operation implicating local officials in Saline County at least and possibly other places. But what's the bigger story we're talking about here? Well, I think the bigger story has to do with Barry Seal. Barry Seal, you may have heard this guy's name. He was basically one of the biggest, if not the biggest, cocaine smuggling kingpin the from, from the 1980s. That's the biggest right. Ever. He he basically ran a small airline out of or a small air cargo line mm -hmm. out of Louisiana and Arkansas through the early 80s and sometimes out of Miami as well. Exactly. And was making millions and millions and millions of dollars on coke. They were bringing in 300 kilos into the country each shipment. He was CIA. Yeah, apparently CIA. Yeah, CIA agent. When it comes down to it, here's a guy who he if you he was killed by the way he was assassinated by. We let's talk about what happened to him. Okay, let's you talk about you know, like the, the sort of the story of what happened to him. So he ran his coke operation for like three or four years and was making massive amounts of money. The DEA finally caught up to him though, and so he turned state's evidence. And he's like, fine, uh, if you don't imprison me for the rest of my life, I'll uh, you know I'll be an informant and help you run a sting operation. Because he's in with the Medellin cartel. Right. He's with like Pablo Escobar, the big guys, like the highest yeah. of the high. Yeah, you know like like Al Pacino, he's flying down there and meeting with these people. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right, right. So, you know, what happens is he turns state's evidence, they let him go and allow him to run to help him run this sting operation. And this is really interesting how this sting operation goes down. Mm. Because if you remember back to our Gary Webb episode, we were talking about how the people who were fighting against against the Sandinista government in Nicaragua were funding their um, counter-revolutionary actions through drug money. Well, this whole sting was set up to make it look like the Sandinistas themselves were selling drugs. And this is the important stuff. So um, 
CEO flies, I think, to Nicaragua. I think that's where the deal went down. And they yeah. get all this undercover footage of him dealing drugs with a high Sandinista official. But it turns out that this official, one of them, probably worked for Oliver North in the whole Iran controversy. Probably wasn't a communist fighting for the revolution, if that's the case, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, point being, Barry Seal sets up the biggest, helps them set up the, like the biggest sting operation, basically in American history, as far as drug, the drug war went. But Seal does not stay out of trouble after this. He could have been a government hero. He could have been a DEA agent for the rest of his life. Right. But he gets caught again, trying to set up smuggling deals outside of all of this, mm-hmm. and the judge. Uh, quote-unquote, puts the screws to him uh, when he gets brought into court. Uh, the thing about it is, is like it's obvious that this guy's wanted by the Medellin cartel, you know, or whoever. I mean, the second the second somebody at that level gets put in jail, they're a target. Yeah, I think basically. there was like a three hundred to six hundred thousand uh, dollar contract on his head. Yes, and he point. was aware of this. Like he talks about this. Everybody in, knew. Yeah, he talks about this in uh, news interviews he gave at the time. Right. Well, what does the judge do? sentences him to a halfway house. You know, halfway house. It's not like quite like prison, but you're there for most of the day and you have to sleep there or whatever. And you can just go to your job. Well, you know, he puts they put Barry Seal in this halfway house and they tell him you can't have a gun and you can't have armed security guards. And so, I mean, as far as the judge is concerned, that's a death sentence if you ask me. You yeah, know, if you if clearly. you send a guy who's obviously clearly. got a price on his head out into a halfway house and tell him he can't have any protection or whatever, yeah. he's he's at a it's a, it ends up being it's a Salvation Army rehab place in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Right. I mean, I doubt that they have very high security there. Exactly, but but even with this said, you know, uh, Seal disobeys the judge's order and has an armed guard there and. The night where that Seal was actually assassinated. By the, by the way, the official story is he was assassinated by an agent for the Medellin cartel from Colombia. Now, the night that Seal was supposed to be assassinated, he had been hiring uh, private, uh, you know, guards to protect him in this halfway house this whole time. Now, he had an old friend named Billy Bob Bear Bottoms. Yeah, he was his like second in command. He was like yeah. his right hand man. He flew cocaine for right. the guy. Right, he was a pilot for SEAL. Um, he Billy Bob Bear Bottoms has always said that SEAL did not work for the CIA. Billy Bob didn't work for the CIA. Bottoms says that they just had a drug smuggling operation, went from Columbia to Louisiana. They made $5,000 a kilo, 300 kilos per shipment. Do the math, that's like $1.5 million per a shipment. A yeah. yeah. He also says that no drugs went to Mena, Arkansas. No weapons went to Nicaragua. They had nothing to do with that. Well, Bottoms also worked for the CIA. And Bottoms was the security person who SEALs had who was supposed to be protecting SEALs the night he was assassinated. Right. So your right-hand man is suddenly not there. There's nobody there protecting you. And, oh, it's the night that the uh, cartel assassins show up with the MAC-10s and blow you away. And that's exactly what happened to Barry SEAL. He got machine-gunned in his car, I think it was. And, you know, that opened up a whole... uh, But there was an investigation afterwards uh, because they brought the guy who shot him to court. They, They caught him. And when the lawyer, the lawyer that represented his assassin, got a hold of this case, the whole thing got blown wide open. In fact, of all the people, of all the sources that we've taken information from tonight, I think the old New Orleans lawyer who, you know, supported the guy that shot Barry Seal was the most interesting. And he yeah. understood best how deep this went. He had a great quote. Uh, let me find out what you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, so it came out in all of this that, uh, 
you know, Barry Seal had not only been flying cocaine up from Colombia, but when he would go fly south down to, down to Colombia, he would make trips and take guns to the Contras in Nicaragua on the way. So he was part of this whole CIA operation of, you know, fly guns down, bring drugs back, sell drugs in, in the U.S., take the money, and do the same thing over and over and over again. Now, how can we connect this to MENA, Raymond? How do we connect this to MENA? Because Barry we, Seal's operation was run out of the MENA airport. There you go. Um, the MENA airport was also well-known in that area as a government a facility used by the government, specifically probably by the CIA. Definitely the MENA airport was used as, to service planes um, and to store warehouse planes, you know. But also they would retrofit planes with concealed compartments yes. and this sort of thing. At the like hollow nose cones, yeah. sliding doors that you could throw out, you know, large bags of cocaine right. out of the plane. Right. And, so should we go ahead and well we could we could get into some deeper corruption right there. Well, let me let me read this quote because this is interesting. Okay. Like uh, you know the the Barry Seal we know he was at least a DEA agent after he was caught and and probably by most accounts a CIA agent before he was caught by the DEA. Um, the lawyer for Seal's assassin points to corruption throughout the DEA and of, of course the CIA is corrupt as well but this is a great quote from that interview it says you want a scandal in this country investigate retired DEA agents investigate their net worth <laughs> to basically implying that most of the people who are you know ostensibly fighting drugs in this country are on the take right right and and uh, this can be proven very very well with an anecdotal story about Barry Seal that I heard was that you know Barry Seal got caught by the DEA, of course, and got set up with that sting operation. Then he got caught again, which is what put him in the halfway house. Well, there was supposedly another incident where, uh, like, a sheriff's deputy or a, um, or a drug enforcement officer that was a Florida state officer caught him in Miami. Like, caught him red-handed on the dock with cocaine in Miami. And the officer tells the story that the DEA and the CIA... I mean, that's a weird... Sort of a weird, you know, player to certain, certain, suddenly enter into this story, but mm -hmm. that the DEA and the CIA came up to the docks and were like, "We'll handle this. We'll take care of this." And supposedly Barry Seal was like all, you know, compromised mm -hmm. with these people and was working with them. There's a, another great anecdote. This is actually from a book written by Terry Reed and John Cummings by the name of Compromise, Clinton, Bush, and the CIA. Um, Terry Reed was, uh, claimed to be a CIA agent who was involved in this MENA drug operation. He was a pilot uh, in Vietnam as well. He quotes Barry Seal a few times saying that the Bush boys were involved in some of this and that Barry Seal had videotape evidence of Jeb and George W. Bush involved in cocaine. Cocaine so, traffic. So that's our second president in this show that we've implicated to this story. Well, let me let me implicate a third real quick, because another uh, another source. Uh, this is in Arkansas. Uh, Russell Welch of the Arkansas State Police. He investigated Mina. By the way, he ended up getting sprayed in the face with anthrax inexplicably. Yeah, let's let, let with take, military grade take, anthrax. Take a minute and let that soak in. That one of the officers investigating this Mena, Arkansas drug connection was sprayed in the face with anthrax. He survived. He went to the hospital. The doctor took one look at him and said, I'm calling the CDC in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Well, one of, one of Russell Welch's sources says that um, during the 88 campaign, Bob Dole comes down to um, 
to Arkansas to ask whether Mina would have any impact on the Bush presidential bid. So apparently Bush was implicated too. Here's another. Well, Bush, Bush was automatically implicated through Iran Contra, as far as I'm concerned, and through, his, and through being the head of the CIA. Yeah, because really head. what this comes down to is that this is all part of the whole Iran Contra. Um, not only money, drug network. Yeah, the money, drug, arms, whole network between you know, the United States, South America, and the Middle East. These these people. I, I got to say this, Joe. I'm going to take a minute and just go off track for a yeah, second. These yeah. people must be crazy ideologues. Think well, about yeah. think about the the complicated nature of the of the operation that we're talking about here, where you will go to the go to the links to set up a whole cocaine smuggling operation, a whole underground gun running operation, all to support, you know, one government or another in a tiny Central American country. I mean, these are people who, I don't know, like, they're just ideological fascists is the best way I can put it, or anti-communists. I mean, but for it to go that far, for you to, like, sell poison to your countrymen to fight communism seems sort of counterproductive yeah because i mean they're not they're well it depends on what you're trying to produce if you're trying to produce you know if you're trying to produce democracy in other countries then maybe it maybe it's okay to you know sacrifice a few of your own for that in these guys mind but uh, i think what they're trying to produce raymond is money for their friends and family you know so I mean? you think it's more about greed than it is about the ideological struggle? I think it's about both. For many people, this whole capitalism-communism fight goes hand-in-hand hand with making a lot of money for me and mine. You know I, what I mean? I can, see, I can see exactly how you were saying that. And you know, another weird Bush connection in this case, the, the, uh, you know, the New Orleans lawyer that we were talking about that represented the guy who shot Barry Seal fought hard and long to have the contents of the trunk of Barry Seal's car submitted as evidence. Oh, well, yeah. this is one yeah. of the most interesting things I heard in this whole story. That's right. So he's trying. This this lawyer is trying to get the evidence. He's trying to get the find out what was in the back of Barry Seal's car when he was shot. Well, it turns out that two FBI agents waltzed into the uh, sheriff's department at the in the county where Barry Seal was shot dead. Walked back into the evidence room, got the contents of the trunk of this car. And took it out with him. Just walked right out. Just walked right out with it. Think about that. That's, uh, you know, I, I mean, like the lawyer said, you know, the, the sheriff's deputies at the station that night should have drawn their guns on yeah. those men. The lawyer, Whether they're FBI or not, they have no right to take evidence out of, right, you right. know, from a local police department. The lawyer says that um, what a they, they finally got access to the contents of that trunk. It had been heavily ransacked by probably the FBI. But guess One what was thing in there. they found in there. Can I say it? Um, okay. Before, I mean, we're building this up, and it should be built up. This is not BS. This yeah. is not us lying about this. In the back of Barry Seal's car was found a piece of paper with... George Bush's phone number. Yeah, George W. Bush's phone yeah. number. In the back of... This is Barry Seal's, This is in the back of the biggest cocaine smuggler in U.S. history's car Barry, when he is shot. Yeah, Barry Seal's, who was, who was a CIA agent, who was probably running guns and drugs for the CIA and for other, in, you know, other government interests, and, and claimed to have surveillance video of, quote, the Bush boys in a drug transaction, or using drugs, with George Bush's phone number in his trunk. Right. Right. At the time he was assassinated. Well, you know, some people might say to you, Joe, Joe, that's just preposterous. I can't believe that. Give me some other connections between Barry Seal's drug running operation and the CIA. What you got, Joe? 
Or what do we have on this? What do we have? The planes. Oh, yeah, yeah, the planes. The fact that he was able to acquire, like, these big military-style aircraft, no problem, and the fact that he bought them or co-owned them with, what was it, Southern Air Corporation or something like that? Southern Air Transport, which which was found by Congress in the 80s to be definitely CIA-owned and operated. Yeah, yeah, and this is not just rumored by, you know, Wikipedia that this was a CIA front company. Congress found that this was a CIA front company. So there's there's your link right there. You know, Barry Seal buying planes... Fitting, refitting planes mm-hmm. and having this heavy connection to this company, which is obviously a CIA front company. How can we say that he was not using those planes to run? Dr- I mean, we obviously know he was running drugs, but how can we say that the CIA didn't know about it? How can we say that you know the people in the state of Arkansas didn't know that? Well, they right. did. Right. And it seems like all the ones who wanted to talk anything about it got killed. Mm-hmm. Or run out of the state. Or ran out of the state, which is what happened to Gene Duffy, by the way. She was the um, the Federal Drug Task Force person from Saline County. Yeah, we forgot to tell you about what happened to her in her investigation. Her investigation was completely stymied. Dan Harmon, who had been the, the special prosecutor who had run the grand jury investigation before about the two boys' murders, basically smeared her in the press. Yeah. And used his press connections to completely smear her. And she started getting death threats all the time. And finally, she just moved out of town because there was nothing she could do. They fired her because she was, quote-unquote, too controversial. Yeah, and well, and she thought that he was there the night the boys were killed. Instantly, Dan Harmon was later convicted several times over a period of a decade or so on many different charges, including racketeering and drug charges in 1997. Right, and and I think that's and so he did finally get his comeuppance, but but he, not for the deaths of these boys. Not for the deaths of these boys, and I mean, she she claims that she had witnesses who had passed polygraph tests yeah. saying that Dan Harmon had been on the tracks right. that night. Right. I mean, th- that's serious business. So look- and it's no wonder that, that she got right out of town. Um, and But the weird thing is, is she must not have been as crazy as the press made her out to be because five out of those seven uh, informers that she had hired and that she had put on the payroll quit the week after she was fired in protest. They were like... And, and they all came out saying the same thing. There is government corruption going on here. We can't we can't do our jobs. Instantly, remember what we, when we talked about the Gary Webb show, what the Kerry Commission found in the 80s was that um, at the very least, the government turned a blind eye to any drug connections with the Iran-Contra affair. They probably knew what was going on but didn't do anything about it. And that's sort of a conservative way to put it, too. Right. What, we, what we're claiming and what, what I've... What I've tend to believe is that the government was very active in drug running and sell, you know, selling drugs to fund Contra arms sales. I mean, it, to me, like the evidence is fairly Well, clear. if you can't get money from Congress, you got to do it somehow, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, let's, well, let's, God, we have, some, it, we're okay. almost done. Look at that, Joe. It's like five minutes till the hour. Well, here's, here's some stuff, Raymond. Um, so we've talked about this, all of this stuff, and you know, you and I were talking about this before the show, is that you know, we've got these local officials who are certainly involved in drugs. We've got Dan Harmon. We've got this cover-up in Arkansas with these, the deaths of these two boys and Successful others. cover-up. Yeah, successful cover-up. Again, this is still an unsolved case. They still don't know. The FBI won't release the files on it, by the way. Right. So, the, so we've got this, and we don't, we can't really say how far this goes in Arkansas government. At the time, Bill Clinton was governor. He had been governor since 1978 in Arkansas. This was in 1987. 
Um, as we know, Bill Clinton ran for president in 1992. He won. He was our president until 2000. Are you sure he didn't become go- like governor of Arkansas in 82? No. Or, he, or 84? No, he was, he was attorney general in Arkansas in, I believe, 74. Oh, okay. And then became governor in 78 because he was 32 years old, youngest governor in Arkansas ever. Um, so, so Bill Clinton, this young, handsome governor... Who, you know, he, he's like loved by everyone, at least as president he was. I'm not sure, you know, how he's perceived in Arkansas. But what we're talking about is a possibility that this sort of thing, that he had knowledge not only of drugs being smuggled through his state, but also that there were deaths and cover-ups that he was involved with in these deaths. And possibly uh, knowledge that the CIA was involved in as well. I think that last fact you bring up, that him knowing the CIA was involved, is probably the biggest impetus for this. Because think about it. You know, he might not have gotten a full report of exactly what happened to those two boys, Mm -hmm. but when he heard the reports of how and where and who was implicated, he would have known to turn a blind eye if he knew that the CIA was involved. Because he didn't, I mean, think about it. This was a politically, upwardly politically mobile person at the time. As much as we can like him or dislike him as president, Mm -hmm. like... I don't think he would have tangled with the CIA at that moment in his career. Right. That, not that he ever did tangle right. with the CIA, right. but whatever. Well, here, here's a question, Raymond. Um, you know, what would it take for us to say, yes, I'm pretty sure that Clinton you know, was aware of everything that was going on in Arkansas? Like, for instance, would it take evidence of Clinton's involvement in drugs directly? Yes. Okay. Well, there are witnesses, according to several people, who say, well, actually, let me back a little bit. We know that Roger Clinton, George Clinton's... Uh, Bill Clinton's brother um, was into coke. Yeah, he was. I, I've seen a video of him doing a line off a table. Yeah, so have I. He was arrested for it. He was convicted. There, are, there are reports that Bill Clinton himself was involved in cocaine as well. Um, so, you know, we've got at this point, you know, sixteen years of presidents in the cocaine business <laughs> who got there partly because of being in the cocaine business. And there, I mean, but and think about how close Arkansas and Texas are. Yeah. You know, they're like right next door to each other. How, I mean, how, think about this too, Joe. How many years of Southern presidents have we had in this country? Mm-hmm. You oh, know? yeah. With, aside from who, Nixon. Right, right. Well, no, well, Nixon was from California, yeah. but where was he from originally? Wasn't he Texas originally? I think he was a California Quaker from the day he was born, I think. Quakers are pacifists, you know, by the way. Yeah, funny that he would, you know. <laughs> anyway, well, he did get us out of the war. He did, he did, pull, he did pull American forces out of the war. That's one that we dissed Nixon. Yeah, but he hated doing it. Yeah, he wanted to kick their commie butts. Have you ever seen that the helicopter taking the last helicopter taking off from Saigon? Oh yeah, yeah. Anyway, what do we, how how are we doing on time? We I, I'd say we can take five more minutes. Okay. Well, what else we got? We, we, we Ollie North. We even mentioned Ollie. We haven't North? even got to Ollie North <laughs> in this whole thing. Ollie, okay. Ollie North figures greatly into the story of Mina, Arkansas. In fact, there are all sorts of reports that he was tangled up. Yeah. In the Mina, Arkansas thing. Gene Duffy says that the, the drug business didn't take off in Mina until Oliver North got involved with right. it. Right. And, and especially until the, the CIA got involved with yeah, it. Yeah, Oliver North and, and the CIA. Okay. So we, we're talking about a drug operation in Mina, Arkansas, right? What's the proof that the CIA is somehow involved with this? Well, not just through Barry Seal because he's the leader of the operation, but also because the CIA has even admitted to running covert operations out of that airport during the 1980s. Now, let's think about this. If the CIA is running a covert operation out of an airport, do you think that it is possible to successfully, 
use that airport to smuggle large amounts of cocaine without them knowing it. Oh, no, of course I mean, not. let's think about no, this. No, no, no. Yeah, so, they know but, exactly what's going on. And, and it took them 10 years to admit this, but, but yes, they did do covert operations out of, out of there, and they've admitted it. I think they said, oh, we did a few. But, I mean, the CIA isn't going to just use um, the the airport in Mena, Arkansas, which is like in the middle of nowhere, just once or twice for some innocuous operation. Right. It's, it, you know what it reminds me of? Operation Mongoose. You know, the stories you hear of... Uh, of guns being smuggled to anti-Castro Cubans in the mm-hmm. 60s and yeah. you know the swamps of Louisiana and stuff like that. It's like this stuff never stopped. It never stopped. And it probably goes on to this day. It's probably a lot of the same people who were involved in the 60s and 50s and 60s among, with you know, the CIA. Right, right, right. I mean, and, and we can make, man, we had talked about wanting to make like a family tree yeah, of this yeah. case and this story and just sort of connect all the different officials. But If we ever do, we'll put it on our website, org slash out there. Okay, Joe, we're running out of time. Let's talk a little bit about Ollie North and then wrap this okay. thing up. Well, did you you saw during Ollie North's trial? There's people uh, with signs. You can you can't really read the signs. You can't really make out what they're saying. But this is the you know the Oliver North hearing in front of the Congress about Iran Contra. Well, what those signs say and what those people are yelling is, ask about the cocaine. Mm-hmm. So, and Oliver North. <laughs> That's a great clip, by the way, where he kind of jumps and turns around like like he's under fire or something. You know yeah, what I mean? he he. I mean, this is like a decorated military veteran, but he he looks like somebody's just thrown a grenade in the back of the room when somebody says that. Furthermore, apparently every single time, both times, Mina, Arkansas, was mentioned two times during Oliver North's hearings. This this is this is evidence. Of this a, is evidence, of a conspiracy yeah. and a cover-up, if ever there was. Both times during the Iran-Contra hearings that Mina, Arkansas, was mentioned, Congress went to closed-door session for the hearings right away, instantly. Like, oh, Mina, Arkansas, okay, close the doors, everyone. So out. there's nothing. It was talked about twice, but there is not one thing on the record about that. And you know, I wonder if at that moment. You know, somebody from the CIA or from the um, maybe from the intelligence committee didn't just go to the people in the hearing and be like, look, we're running some special ops out of there right now, so we don't really need to talk about it, but we are investigating Barry Seal. I can see something like that being said to a few key congressmen and getting it off their backs. But I mean, apparently, but, but, the, but the covert operation was the drug smuggling. Right. That's what we've got right. to understand about In many this. ways, and this is so interesting, how, again, how information is used to hide information. On the one hand, we've got the whole, you know, selling arms to Iran to fund the Contras thing. I mean, that yeah, that's secret and everything, but there's a deeper secret that never got out. Somehow, again, you can use, you know, a lie to cover... Exactly, lie, you know? exactly, and uh, and you know, bigger the lie, more people believe it. Right. right? So there's an- another th- another sort of thing in that same vein that fascinates me is that you know Clinton was seen as this big philanderer and adulterer, and he you know always had women and blah blah blah. Well, if you know if Clinton's involvement in this thing goes at all deep, which you know I suspect that maybe he you know is connected to this whole Mina Arkansas drug smuggling thing in some way, but if it, if it he seems is, very likely, it seems likely to me if at all. If he is at all, though, doesn't adultery and philandering make a great smokescreen for, like, this sort of more evil kind of involvement? Sure. I mean, like we were talking about earlier, you know, he he left uh, the Oval Office with a 68% approval rating after he had been impeached. Imagine, right. imagine right. if he had not been impeached for 
uh, you know, screwing around with Monica Lewinsky or whatever. But uh, imagine if he had been impeached for cocaine smuggling. <laughs> right. You know, obstruction yeah. of justice in a m- capital murder case. Right. You know. Right. And let's not even start talking about Vince Foster and blah and all that other stuff. Oh, Vince, man, we, and <laughs> Webb Hubble. Oh, uh, the, oh yeah. Webb Hubble is a guy that became like got up on my um, stuff list. I guess I can't say the S word on on the air, but he, Webb Hubble ended up on on my uh, anti list mm. when I watched all the Waco stuff. Right, and uh, this just makes me hate Webb Hubble more. And and this is what we have to the last thing we have to say about this Webb Hubble, who is top official in the Clinton administration in the early years, owned a company called Parkometer. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. think it was in Little Rock. It was in Arkansas, right? And he had used, like, uh, loan fraud to get the money to start this company. Well, this company, in fact, did not make parking meters. They made ho- hollowed-out nose cones for Cessna airplanes and other small aircraft that cocaine could be hidden in. And they were put. They were used at Mena, in right, Mena, Arkansas. In Mena, Arkansas. So there's your compromising connection right, right there. Webb Hubble, who at the time was in the Rose Law Firm with Hil- Hillary Clinton. That man looks like a cow, by the way. He always way. has that sort he, of he sad like, look. He looks like he's chewing cud right. at all moments. Anyway, I, th- I think that's going to wrap it up for us. Webb Hubble looks like a cow. Bush and Clinton were dealing coke. Both Bushes. Yes. And, uh, all three of them, actually. All three of them. And those two boys that got killed on the train tracks uh, are crying out for justice to this day. And hopefully we helped out just a little bit with that tonight. So if you liked what you heard, you can send us an email, outthereradio at gmail.com. Check out our website, wuog.org slash out there. Remember to capitalize the O and the T. That's right. Or uh, send me a message on AOL Instant Messenger. I'm almost always on there. Our screen name is Out There Radio, all one word. Well, we're running over time, so we're going to wrap it up. Um, my name is Raymond Wiley. I'm Joe McFall. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Out There, a presentation of WUOG 90.5 FM in Athens, Georgia. For more information or to subscribe to our podcast, visit www.wuog.org slash podcasts or email us at outthereradio at gmail.com.